This is an ABC podcast. The Bucket List. The Four Corners special really shone a light on deficiencies in aged care. And we've been having conversations in the community after that about whether we need more funding, about staff, not having enough staff, and um, the, the, the level of training of the staff. And I think more interestingly, I think we've seen conversations about families and their role in, you know, dump and run or why are we prioritising adequate care to the convenience of the rest of our lives. And I guess building on that then, a conversation about how Australian values and how that's reflected in our aged care system. So, Lee Fei, I mean, in the work that you've done into ageing and health, are there countries that stand out which sort of a best practice for aged care? They're doing, you know, the things that maybe Australia should consider? There's some countries with with quite different models of care and I guess they're they're also examples of um, other models of care which haven't been adopted in a widespread way in Australia. For for example, in the Netherlands, um, they're trying to build villages which are normal normal places to live. They're like a home. They have a shop and a cafe but they're also dementia-friendly. The community can come in and out of those places, so you, you know, you could go and have pizza or you know a coffee there, um, not not necessarily to visit anybody there, but because it's a nice place to be. Um, so trying to make so there's those models and there's other models in, in the US, for example, like the Eden Alternative or the Greenhouse Project, which are all about models of of a home, so a small home-like environment. Staff aren't carers, they're companions or buddies. Um, you know, they're not there to care, they're there to support the people in kind of living their life. It's not about medical care, so there is great medical care, it's about domestic life. And so, I mean, but, that sorry, Netherlands yeah. model is obviously different because it's kind of setting up a microcosm of what the community is that they would be living in anyway, but allowing people who aren't necessarily visiting people who might live in that particular village, it's still allowing them that contact with the community, which they would would, would have. Oh, absolutely. And I think that there are lots of examples of, of bringing the community into the facility and bringing the facility out into the community. So we're seeing some lots of intergenerational programs, for example, where you've got a daycare centre on site with a facility and, you know, the, the residents and the children have opportunities to interact. That's bringing the community in. I mean, the, the, the parents are coming, you know, all kinds of people are coming into that space as well. We're seeing a few more kind of cafes, you know, restaurants on site that the community can access. I don't think that's happening kind of very well yet in Australia. Are there things that we can learn from these countries who are doing it in a different way or doing it in a way that we haven't considered? I mean, what are some of those things that we could consider? What these countries are doing and what the research literature is starting to show us is that smaller home-like units are better for all the people who are living in group housing, essentially. So rather than a big kind of hospital-style building, you've got little clusters of people living in, you know, in homes of maybe between six and you know, maybe up to 10 or 15 people. So they can know each other. They have a kitchen, you know, where they can prepare meals or have their meals heated up at least. They've got a lounge room that looks like a human lounge room, not, not a giant kind of, you know, hospital waiting room with lots and lots of chairs and, you know, a TV in the corner. 
um, it's a place that families can come and make a cup of tea and have a chat. They would encourage then children to come and play because there's play equipment in the garden. There's a garden where they can garden. There's, you know, there's things to do. There's a men's shed. It's a place where you, you still have, you still do everyday life. Um, so that's really quite a different model to, uh, this is a hospital where people live permanently. Lee Fei, Australia is a multicultural country. And is that something that also has to be taken into consideration when it comes to aged care and particularly those who are from diverse backgrounds, both linguistically but also culturally? This is something that struggles with, I think, for providing care for people from migrant or other backgrounds. I mean, our migrant communities generally don't want to put someone into a nursing home. They see this as you know, a last resort, basically. And they tend to look after the person at home for as long as possible. So the community services that are culturally specific are really popular and there's often really long waiting lists to get access to those services. For the more established um, cultures, so Italian, Greek, Chinese, uh, German, we do have culturally specific, culture-specific nursing homes. So, you know, the decor, so I'm Chinese, so, you know, I work with some of the Chinese facilities. So the decor is Chinese, Buffalo speak Chinese, everything happens in Chinese, the activities, you know, they play mahjong and, you know, sing, watch Chinese opera. It kind of makes sense and it, it feels like a Chinese home, a really big Chinese home. Where we struggle is if we have uh, an Italian-speaking person in a white home and not many people, not many of the staff speak Italian and no one else speaks Italian. It becomes um, so isolating and distressing potentially for that person because they're trying to talk to other people. No one understands them. There might not be a staff on that shift who understands them. And then they start to behave in ways which are called then challenging behaviours because they're yelling or screaming in their language. No one understands them. They might push someone or they might act out or they might not understand what the staff does and push the staff member. And then they end up, you know, in a locked unit, potentially on medication, it's kind of really difficult because I think it's so hard to provide care to someone who you don't understand culturally and can't communicate with in a common language. And I would say, Leifei, I mean, with your background also in, um, you know, studying dementia, that if uh, you are from a culturally um, linguistic background, um, culturally diverse linguistic background, that if you then add dementia onto that, that you know, that could offer up a whole different um, problem, you know, a whole different um, area that you need to think about, um, particularly if that person starts to revert to the first language. Yeah, I mean, often people will lose their English language abilities um, with dementia. I mean, add up the complication that staff often don't speak English as a first language in facilities, particularly in urban areas. So you've got someone who doesn't speak English with someone who is a wonderful person and trying their best but doesn't speak English very well and doesn't understand that person's culture. And unless we have ways of kind of helping the staff member understand the person, either by using their family or getting culturally appropriate training, that staff member is going to find it so hard to communicate and work with that person. I'm Rihanna Patrick. This is ABC Radio, and my guest is Lee Fei Lo. She's an Associate Professor in Ageing and Health at the University of Sydney. Now. 
Um, Lee Fei, just on dementia, I mean, how does the stigma around dementia affect the care given to those who are going through it? I mean, are there areas that you can see that there needs to be improvements in? I think that we often have the stereotype of some of dementia as not being able to understand something, being bed bound and requiring care. And, you know, you don't go from being normal to requiring, you know, full 24-hour care like like that when you get a diagnosis. So, you know, a lot of people with dementia are perfectly competent people, but they have trouble organising their thoughts and they might have memory problems. So I think that when we give someone the label of dementia in care, sometimes we underestimate what they're able to do and we start to think we have to do everything for them. That just makes them more disabled. So if the person can, you know, shower themselves and make their bed and dress themselves, we see the label of dementia and we think, oh, they can't do it. We also label behaviours in response to not understanding your environment or uh, understanding why someone, you know, why someone's asking you to do something as behaviours or behavioural symptoms of dementia. We used to call them BPSD, behavioural psychological symptoms of dementia. And because this is kind of a medical label, then we think, well, how we treat, you know, the symptom is through medication. And really, that's not appropriate. I mean, this is a normal human response to not understanding your environment or being neglected or being bored. And if we start to think of people's dementia as people who might not have the best communication skills, I guess we have a much more humane you know, way of interacting. Leafa, you also look at sort of practice and culture change. How do you, how would you go about changing the culture in a sector like aged care? And I mean, you are obviously aware of the things that need to change, but how long is that, could that change take? In our work in individual facilities, we find that to change the culture, it takes us at least a couple of years. So I would think that for the whole industry to shift, like the aged care sector in Australia, you think of it as a huge ship. And, you know, it's been kind of going in one, in one direction because of our values, because historically it came out of a medical model, you know, for years. If we as a society and the government want to change direction, this is turning a huge boat. And I think it will take us five to ten years to do that. You wrote an article last year for The Conversation, which was about home care and how to pick a provider which sits, which suits the situation that you or your loved one might be in. But is there something about the way that you do that in that, you know, being the person that picks the services that fit you rather than being told what the services are that you're going to get? Does that need to change? Consumer-directed care model was introduced as part of our aged care reform with the idea that we're giving older people, we now call them consumers, the responsibility, I guess, to keep choosing the service and then kind of us like choosing what services they get. For some people, that's worked really brilliantly. It's given them so much more choice about how they can spend, I guess, the, the budget within their home care package. For other people, it's just made things more complicated in that now they, they've got to make choices, but they're not given much information, which is why we wrote the article in the conversation. But there's not that much information about how to make the choice. And there's not support in knowing what you want in, in some sense before you make the choice. So it's, it's like when you're trying to choose a new mobile phone provider. In some ways, you don't even know what mobile phones can do anymore. So I need that information before I know what I want, before I can make a choice. So I think it's, it's actually put a lot of um, responsibility 
onto families who who, who are dig- more digi- digitally literate to negotiate that environment. So, Lee Fei, what would be your advice then if you're, you know, in that situation and what are the things that you should think about? Well, I mean, there's, there's some information online. Um, there's not enough to really help you discern air quality in terms of the provider. I would take recommendations from people in your area about organisations that they've used. If you know, if you if you know someone who knows someone, you know, talk to them about their service provider, and then when you are ringing a service provider up, treat it like an interview. You're interviewing them to see if you think that they will suit you, and try and see whether you think that they'll be responsive to needs and understand what what you really want from your support at home. If you've just joined me, this is ABC Radio and my guest is Lee Fei Lowe, who's an Associate Professor in Ageing and Health at the University of Sydney. Now, Lee Fei, what interests you about aged care and why did you get into this, you know, this area of study? I love my grandparents when I was little. I always found them very kind of, you know, such a sense of wisdom fun to be around. My first job when I left university after a basic psychology degree was as a home care worker. And those people I looked after, mostly with dementia, they taught me so much about myself, about life, about what's important in life, I guess, and how to live well. And after I did that, I went into dementia research, basically. And, and I'm so passionate, I guess, about this, you know, relatively until recently, neglected area. And Lee Fei, I mean, I know we've spoken uh, a lot about the negatives, about the problems, about the concerns, but you've also worked uh, on a number of quite interesting and positive programs in aged care facilities. Um, can you tell me a little bit of some of the work that you've done and the things that you have been uh, experimenting with and those programs that you've been lucky enough to be a part of? A lot of our work in residential care and in home care is about increasing quality of life. Of, of the residents or the clients. So we really believe that people should have meaningful lives and happy lives, you know, try to find different ways of giving people that meaning. So we've done some work in intergenerational programs so where we've uh, had day, day, daycare, kids in daycare um, meeting and regularly doing activities with their grand, their grand friends, we called them. So that was a lovely project. Um, we've done projects where we've brought chemotherapy for elder clowns into facilities and they've interacted with residents and we've, you know, we showed that basically a one-hour visit, group visit by an elder clown has the same benefits as antipsychotic medication you've seen in the news, you know, all the negative, potentially negative impacts of the antipsychotic medication. So in some ways I'm like, well, you know, we didn't kill anyone with our intervention. So why wouldn't we have someone visiting to interact and give meaning to someone's life rather than rather than a pill which could kill you? Once we kind of started those interventions where we had people going into facilities, I realized that, you know, it's not necessarily sustainable and that the residents get a dose of fun or a dose of engagement, but then those the kids or the elder clients go away. And so more recently, we've been working in culture change models where we're trying, well, we have actually successfully changed how the day-to-day practice runs. And I was so happy to have, for example, um, worked with the Widden Group and they won a Better Practice Award because we really changed how the staff and the residents interact. We group the staff into little, into little clusters 
So we have the same staff within the same group of residents rather than you know, everyone working for everyone. We gave them a, a buddy, basically, so a staff to resident buddy. And then we focus on one resident or a couple of residents each week and give them their best week possible, which could be a ride on a Harley-Davidson. It could be them going fishing in their wheelchair on a fishing boat. We're just doing anything that really kind of gives meaning that they all kind of look forward to and you know, think about in their life. So, Lee Fay, if money was no object and totally hypothetical question, <laughs> you know, what would aged care look like for you and, you know, why you're so passionate about this and, you know, if you could do anything, what would it look like for you? If money was no object, we would build uh, little villages, small little groups of homes, which were homes that people brought their photographs and furniture into and husbands and wives could live together and people would have some control over that home. Who else came to live with them, the food that was served and, you know, the activities that happened in there. Those villages would be embedded in a setting that the community would come into. We would have the market and the car park on the weekend. The whole, you know, the local school would come and stage plays in, in the auditorium and the residents would come along. The residents might be then volunteering to paint that for the local school's place, you know. So we'd be embedding the, the, our elders' lives, I guess, much more into community. And the families would come. There would be a room and, you know, you would have parties. So you, you would bring your family and have a big birthday party and all the other residents would come so that it's much more about community and about life and much less about being isolated and by yourself and kind of being in God's waiting room. On ABC Radio, you're with Rihanna Patrick.